You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from today, the 24th of January. And on the programme this Wednesday, we found out how local entrepreneurs are helping to develop Hatter's burgeoning tourist economy. We talked strategy with Rudy Subra from Dubai Holding, who managed the Hatter Fort Hotel. And we caught up with one of the area's newest entrepreneurs, Halfan Al-Badwawi, who is the founder of the Hatter Strawberry Farm. Plus, could dynamic road tolls be the answer to our congestion problems? We talked it through with a professor of transport. That's after the Roads and Transport Authority suggested that they are considering it for Dubai's roads. Meanwhile, a rise in tip-offs from the public is helping Dubai police combat crime. Producer Jennifer Crichton caught up with First Lieutenant Khaled Barakat from Dubai Police CID, who gave us the lowdown on the Police Eye app. And social enterprise companies are on the up. They now generate about two trillion US dollars each year, and they're responsible for more than 200 million jobs. Daniel Flynn, the co-founder and managing director of Thank You, set up his company. 14 years ago. He's now planning to launch in the UAE and he joined us in the Agenda Studio to tell us more. Meanwhile, we also celebrated International Day of Education by taking a look at the impact of green education and why it could have a huge impact on global efforts to protect the environment. We spoke to Shama Al-Khuri from the outreach programme at the Environment Agency Abu Dhabi. And our fantastic sports editor, Chris McCarty, brought us up to date with all the latest sporting headlines. I'm sure you've noticed if you've lived here for a few years that we've basically, I suppose, over the last, uh, I mean, it's probably about five to six years now. We've basically watched Hatta grow from a sleepy border village to a fantastic staycation destination with all those amazing sort of outdoorsy tourist attractions. And that development has been very, very carefully managed to ensure that local entrepreneurs, that the locals themselves, are brought along for the ride. So while there's loads of really big government-funded developments, for example, you know, you've got a new hydroelectric plant, there's a big cable car going in, there are also dozens of small businesses also sort of cropping up around the sidelines. And they're often set up by really young Emirati locals. And actually, a little bit later on in the programme, we're going to speak to one of them, um, someone who runs a, a strawberry farm up there. And that is in part thanks to a specific organisation that was set up by the government. It's the Mohammed bin Rashid Establishment for Small and Medium Enterprises Development. Does it exactly what it says on the tin? And we wanted to find out a little bit more about how that works. Um, so we're going to catch up now with one of the key sort of stakeholders. I hate that expression, but one of the key people, one of the key figures who's involved in that project. Um, Rudy Subra, he's the Vice President of Asset Management at Dubai Holding, where he basically leads on Hatta. Now, Dubai Holding owns all sorts of companies around the UAE. Full disclosure, it owns this radio station. Um, and uh, it also does a lot of development up at Hatta. Now, Rudy runs nine hotels in the UAE, including the Fata, Hatta Fort Hotel. And he was very much involved right at the very first stages of where people basically, important people, got together and decided on the strategy 
strategy for Hatter. And I asked him to sort of, I spoke to him just a little bit earlier, and I sort of asked him to cast his mind back to, I suppose, when it all started. And this was his answer. Initially started with the vision of His Highness to use the highland of Hatta or Hatta destination. Dubai has the desert. Dubai has the beach. But no one actually knew that Dubai has mountains and has wadis, has an amazing lake tucked between lovely mountains. So it started in 2017, 2018, when Dubai Holding got involved. And then we started developing a master plan for a destination. Then the first of our project was the Hatta sign. So it was like a tourist anchor. Uh, you see, as soon as you enter Hatta, become like uh, the gate. And then I approached last year uh, Guinness Books of Record. And then this year we started season six announcing that we broke the record. So it's the tallest sign in the world. And, you know, this is one of the first projects that uh, we built in there with no intention whatsoever to break any records. And then six years after, we found out that it's, it's the tallest sign of the world. So you can see the vision behind that everything that we're doing. Everything had to be impressive. Everything had to be uh, new, uh, have to be new experiences. We didn't develop any hotels. We developed like a glamping experience. It was all about the outdoor as well, you know, because, you know, people in the city wants to kind of exit the city and enjoy the outdoor so it was a lot of planning, a lot of location that we use very carefully out of the zoning of where the local of Hatta, because you have to respect their culture. You know, it's, Hatta is still a small village. This is what makes it beautiful, the people, the nature. So it was a very deliberate decision not to just bulldoze in there with loads of five-star hotels, but to actually be sympathetic to the culture and the environment. Yeah, that's correct. And then in terms of our project, uh, you know, we were very careful about uh, destroying anything related to the nature. So if you see our project is like trailers, caravans, you know, lodges, like even with the lodges, Hatta Destination was built in a way that we don't destroy the nature. You get a sense there of just how you know dedicated you were to keeping the locals happy. And that's yeah. quite interesting because, of course, it wasn't necessary you could just have gone in there and imprinted whatever you wanted in many ways why did everyone decide to bring the locals along for the ride why was that was that a strategic decision the way that we built Hatta is obviously focusing on the nature and at the same time kind of showcasing Hatta's beauty Hatta's local Emirati hospitality because you know they're very welcoming as soon as you meet someone you have to go to his house and have lunch. He just met you. He's like, oh, you have to come to my house and have lunch. You go and eat in one of the restaurants, and then in the exit, you come to come and pay the bill. Uh, and then you find out that actually one of the local actually paid your bill. They still have the old Arabic hospitality imprinted in them, which is uh, very pleasant to see that still exists in this part of the world. It's this time... You know, like, word is changing very quick, but you can still see the hospitality of Hasta is still there. And I've been there since 2018, uh, working with the local community, and then they kind of adopted me as one of their own. They even changed my surname to Al-Badwawi to be part of their tribal community. And so one of the highlights of when we started in Hatta is to make sure that we create some opportunities for the local of Hatta. 
And then this Wadi Hub, we created opportunities for these locals. So we built restaurants, we built coffee shops, and then we made sure that we supported them in terms of selling their products. So if, for example, someone's producing honey, we create a small kiosk for him. We support him in his branding. We made sure that we relied on other Dubai holding companies or entities, like giving them a space in Global Village, assisting them in being in Jayan. So today in Wadi Hub, we have 28 entrepreneurs that started with us from 2018. And every single year is growing. So this year we added additional four. And most of them, they're local Emiratis from Hatta that we basically make sure that their Diwa bill is supported. We start to try to do some marketing. If they need some help with the branding, we try to assist them. And so as far as plans for the future... What have we got next for Hatta? Because, of course, other areas are also developing in the UAE, other outdoorsy areas. Obviously, Ras al-Khaimah have an offering as well. So you need to keep ahead of Ras al-Khaimah. What's coming soon at Hatta that we've got to look forward to? The surge in the demand of Hatta destination is basically, it's on the rise. They have a lot of projects coming on the horizon. So currently there is a sustainable waterfall system being built. I think the plan is to open it in February. There is a commitment into enhancing the nature and the beauty of the region by adding more farms in there. Recently, had the strawberry farm opened that fully supported by Dubai municipality. And then it's like you can go there and then you can pick your own strawberry. And then, you know, there's jam from the farm. There's recently been uh, talk about uh, all-season beach, so you can drive the summer business as well. Cable car all the way to the third highest peak in Dubai. It's called Mountain Emunusur, the Eagle Mountain. It's 1,300 feet above sea level. There's a lot of stuff coming uh, at Georgia. So, like you, you just have to watch the space. And then there's things still ongoing. So this year in Hattawadi Hub, uh, we opened a 19-meter rope course that have 55 activities in it. Lean Park is open with a kayak experience in there. Dubai Municipality just enhanced the mountain biking track and the hiking track, creating some areas where you can sit and then enjoy the nature while you're on top. With the announcement of Hatta sign, it became a bucket list. So everyone wants to come all the way to Hatta and hike. So we have a, a huge number of people coming every single weekend with big groups just hiking all the way to the Hatta sign, which is around seven kilometers. So there's a lot of stuff. That's good. I mean, and is it working? Is it bringing the visitors in? You know, have your numbers gone up? Yes, the number definitely has gone up year on year. This uh, season, with uh, all the activation that is done recently, I'm sure you heard about the Festival. So we had four festivals running at the same time. We're averaging to Wadi Hub around twelve to 15,000 every single day. It's a big number. You know, when we started the destination in 2018, the targeted number uh, per season is to have 40,000. This is the target number based on budget and based on plan. Last year, we have around 400,000 plus. There you go. Not a small number. Pretty impressive stuff uh, seeing how Hatta is growing. And it's really lovely to see how organically it's growing and how the locals are being brought along for the ride and how that is actually adding to the way 
uh, I suppose it's adding to the appeal of the place as a tourist destination. Uh, obviously, big focus on the young entrepreneurs there. And in fact, uh, we are actually going to speak to one of them next in the coming minutes. You heard Rudy Subra there, Vice President of Asset Management at Dubai Holding, uh, speaking briefly about the new strawberry farm. Well, I'm delighted to say in the next few minutes, we will be speaking to uh, the Emirati founder of that farm, Kalfan Al-Badawi, joining me in the next few minutes. Welcome back to the show. We are talking about Hatta today. In fact, we are specifically discussing the exponential growth of Hatta from a sleepy mountain village not that long ago to a really successful tourist destination. Um, I don't know about you, but I feel like it sort of really kicked off during COVID-19, which is the last thing you'd expect in many ways. But because none of us could travel, there was this real sort of focus on local tourism. And I think that was... I think that really accelerated Hatter's popularity. Um, But also the Dubai government has invested hugely and cleverly in the area. And they say um, that it's not just them. They say uh, part of the success is due to the local entrepreneurs who are boosting tourism in the region with their clever ideas and new businesses. Um, And one of those clever entrepreneurs uh, is joining us on the line now. I'm delighted to say Kalfan Al-Badwawi is an Emirati. He's a founder of Hatta Strawberry Farm, and he's definitely one of those entrepreneurs that are being talked about at the moment. Uh, Kalfan, thank you so much for joining me on the line. How are you? Hi, fine. I'm you. How are you? I'm Good. very well indeed. Tell me, how did you <laughs> come up with the idea of a strawberry farm? As you know, Dubai and uh, tourism is uh, growing fast now there in Dubai and especially in Hatta. We have this plan long time ago and we was testing the how we grow the strawberry in our uh, our land, our uh, requirement. You know, it's strawberry... Uh, Trees need uh, cold weather. So we have some challenge and we have this idea. Yeah, we start uh, testing how to grow the strawberry because it's different in- environment, uh, not a place of strawberry there. Uh, so we start that uh, growing the strawberry and we have this idea for tourism, how we change it for tourism, not for the marketing only. So we have this idea, we start to make the farm, change it to to visitor to Hatta, and we make a cafe and sitting area there in the farm. Uh, and last year, uh, Sheikh Mohammed, we we was in, in there in Hatta and showed the strawberry uh, fruit. And Sheikh Mohammed uh, come to us and ask about the farm. And I invite him to visit the farm. Uh, after five, ten minutes, uh, the team asked me, let's go to the farm. Sheikh Mohammed, you will see the farm and your idea. My goodness me. So totally so unexpectedly, His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum turned up at your farm. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Just I invite him. Uh, we are pleasure to uh, to visit our farm. After 10 minutes, he said, let's go to the farm and see. When he came there and see the farm and see the idea, uh, he like it and he support us and give us a, a greenhouse, big greenhouse, uh, supporting to the farm uh, to to grow the strawberry in our summer. You know, the weather here in Hatta or in Emirates very hot in the summer. 
So we get support from him, uh, a greenhouse, big greenhouse for uh, growing. That's fantastic. We use uh, hydroponic uh, systems inside. It's fully organic uh, strawberry. Is it still quite difficult to draw to grow strawberries in Hatta? Is it? Ha- have you had to perfect it over many years to make the strawberry plant survive? Yes, we work hard for this, and uh, we we know uh, you, we use uh, a different kind of strawberry that it can grow there in uh, in our uh, weather and our land, and and can. Uh, Yani, this challenge of the weather that's make us <clears throat> more challenge and but now alhamdulillah we are going and grow fast actually maybe one month or two months we will open uh, officially the fab for the guest fantastic mm. so there'll be this this sort of brief period of a, of a month or so or maybe longer when people can come as tourists to the strawberry farm pick strawberries and eat them then and there. Is that the idea? Yes, that's the main idea. That's the visitor they can and pick up the strawberry from the ground and uh, test it there and they can sit. We have a different area of sitting. Also, we have a coffee shop. <clears throat> also, we make, we make a, a jam and juice of strawberry there. They can test it and buy it. Can I ask, is this... Um are you one of many people among your community who are starting small businesses? You know, you're obviously from a farming background. You you understand how, how the land works and how you can make it produce uh, really quite soft, sensitive fruits. Do you have other colleagues, other friends who are also involved in tourism in Hatta now? Yes, our uh, most of our, uh, especially the young uh, people there in Hatta, uh, they like to start uh, uh, their own business and uh, because it's Hatta is growing fast now. So this is the time if anyone need to make a business, uh, they have to start now to, to, to be with uh, the growing of the business. So there's a lot of uh, guys there. They have uh, a lot of business. They start uh, different business for the tourism, for the food services. A lot of things there we have in Hatta. Does it feel like an exciting time? Did you ever expect Hatta to become as busy as it started to become? Yes, Hatta, it was two years ago, it was after Corona, we was growing slowly a little bit. It's growing, but slowly. But uh, this year, uh, Dubai government, they focused to Hatta and how the tourists uh, need them to come to see Hatta. Uh, to to see Hatta in uh, the nice place that for tourists for relax for fresh air and they focus by uh, Dubai media and we have a lot of visitors this year actually we receive uh, around uh, 20,000 daily uh, visitors to Hatta uh, last month uh, it was very very busy Hatta and uh, the business is working hard and fast, uh, so that we that mean we need to uh, to be more faster and work hard to to grow our business and to to be to keep Hatta in the beginning of uh, tourism uh, places, not only only globally also, inshallah. 
Fantastic to speak to you, sir. Thank you so much for for taking the time. You can tell there uh, exactly here there exactly how ambitious uh, everyone from Hatta is to, to really put it on the map, uh, not just here in the UAE, not just in the region, but globally. That's Halfan Al Badwawi. He is the Emirati founder of the Hatta Strawberry Farm, and I, for one, will be keeping a very close eye on the ripeness and the readiness of those strawberries. And I'll be uh, heading up to visit you, Halfan, uh, given half a chance. So thank. Thank you very, very much. much and you are welcome to Hatta. Thank you very much indeed, sir. Really appreciate your time. We're marking International Day of Education on the programme today. Um, I don't normally do this. I said this earlier. I don't normally just sort of focus on education because someone, has, someone, someone somewhere has decreed that it's International Day of Education. Um, but there was a really interesting global study that just came out um, that suggests that if 16% of secondary school students in middle and high income countries across the globe, so like the UAE, if they were educated about climate change, it could lead to a reduction of nearly 19 gigatons of CO2 emissions by 2050. And this massive shift, this massive reduction, is apparently because if you educate young people, they tend to then develop personal collections with climate change solutions. And then they change their behaviour throughout their lives. And then, of course, they pass it on to their children and then on to their children's children. And you've got a nice virtuous circle. So with that statistic in mind, joining me now to explain how they're involved in educating young people is Shama Al-Khori. Now, she works on the Outreach Programme for Young People for the Environment Agency Abu Dhabi. And she's joined me now on the phone. Shama, thank you very much indeed. Good morning to you. Tell me, at what age do you start to teach children about the environment? So you have these outreach programs. Do you have them for for children as young as kindergarten, for example, or do you wait till they're a little bit older? Hello, good morning. Yeah, Uh, we have them from the kindergarten to the grade 12 students. We have for each certain cycle, we have different programs for these students on how to preserve the environment and different um, challenges that environment is facing today. How do you operate those programs? Do you have children come to you on field trips or do you go into the the schools? Uh, We have a program called the Sustainable School Initiative. It's a whole uh, school initiative addressing school communities and link them with the community to promote sustainability. The Sustainable School Initiative is an internationally recognized uh, initiative was launched in 2009, and to date we have more than 500 schools all around the Emirates uh, part of this. To be a sustainable school, they need to undertake, like, um, we have four different components, field trips, like connecting the students and exposing them to different environmental and ecosystems in the uh, UAE. And also we have the eco-clubs where uh, we expose the students uh, and build their capacity to reach out to the community. And also we have the training of uh, edu- uh, trainings of trainers we educate um, uh, the train uh, the the teachers on how to integrate the concept of environment to the curriculum for students in different ways and programs so i didn't realize my children both go to eco club at school and if you're doing 500 schools in the emirates i bet that is something to do with you guys i hadn't quite sort of realized how involved you are in the school community here do you also collaborate with universities, because at that level, it's going to be much more sort of cerebral research, isn't it? 
Yes, we also have we have the same concept, the same program for sustainable campus initiative. We have so far 27 universities and college all around the Emirates, uh, target, targeting youth and educational institute to promote green growth. The initiative provides a concept framework for implementing academic sustainable programs in the UAE colleges and universities, which helps in leadership skills to tackle the UAE environmental issues. It sounds like you're very much embedded in the education system here in the UAE. Do you measure the success of that? Is there a way of measuring the success of that program? Yes, each academic year schools and universities submit a report on their uh, like the audit of their schools and we compare it each year or how successful these programs and these environmental uh, practices uh, schools are doing and universities impact uh, which are the ones that are most successful? What what are the touch points for children that seem to get the most interested, most invested in in helping the environment? You know, is it animals? Is it habitats? You know, what grabs their attention? Uh, mostly, I like the the nature of ecosystems and biodiversity more. They are interested, like yeah. in animals, like as you mentioned. Yeah, mine absolutely. I have to say animals are the way in for my children as well. Now, we've just had COP28, uh, obviously massive global conference, hard to beat. Uh, but there is another major conference coming up, which actually is being hosted in Abu Dhabi, isn't it? The World Environmental Education Congress, a real privilege for Abu Dhabi to be hosting that event. Uh, what are you expecting to happen? Yeah, we are honored. We are honored to host the World Environmental Education Congress. It is an international congress addressing the education of for environment and sustainable development. It is an experience to connect people from all over the world to discuss and learn and share the updates and education programs surrounding environment and sustainable development. As you mentioned, UAE also hosted COP and in the effort of continuing the force fostering the dialogue around sustainability and climate change, the Congress aims to address global environmental challenge through education and will serve as a hub for inspiration, actionable uh, strategies with influencer speakers, uh, including educators, NGOs, and academics. Also, COP uh, focused on climate, not only focused on climate change, but also focused on the need to build capacity and resilience in the workforce through environmental education. At which we are uh, uh, continuing this dialogue and uh, to address the climate change and the triple landscape factors for climate change, biodiversity loss and pollution. Uh, it is um, at work we are looking forward uh, at how to address these uh, CPCs through collaboration, building networks, early childhood education, outdoor places, based learning and the use of AI and technology. I would like to invite all the educators in the E to attend this uh, this great uh, opportunity to have uh, and share their experience and knowledge. Yeah, it should be very interesting indeed. That is the World Environmental Education Congress taking place in Abu Dhabi from the 29th until the 2nd of February. A really fantastic opportunity. Uh, Sharma, thank you so much for joining us on the line today. I'm, I'm going to finish our interview now just because the line isn't perfect, but we really hope to have you join us on the radio once again, uh, perhaps next week uh, when this big event is going on. Shama Al-Khoury, the Outreach Programme Analyst for Youth and Community at the Environment Agency Abu Dhabi. Hey you there, morning all. Right, so I was late into work this morning. Um, I mean, there were lots of reasons. 
you know, part, partly I probably got out of bed five minutes later and that is how tightly I run my life. Um, and then I spilt my tea and I had to take the children to school and then there was a traffic jam again on Umsakim Road. There's always Umsakim Street. There's always traffic on Umsakim Street. I spend half my life on Umsakim Street. Every single one of those shops, Creative Minds, there's a fish shop, there's a rug shop, there's Marina Home. I mean, I know them. I can list them one by one. That's just on the right hand of the road as you head out to the desert. I can tell you on the other side, I mean, there's just lots of, you, there's lots of places where you can get new wheels. Uh, a, a moment of sort of light and joy is, is that my children found was if you look for the Michelin Man along that stretch of road, you can find about 32 Michelin Man. It's a bit like counting Christmas trees in, um, in England. Um, yeah, I really know the road well. And it's because the traffic is so bad. It's so bad. And so I'm desperately searching. I mean, I know I probably shouldn't be using my job on the radio for this, but I'm always desperately searching for solutions to that. Anytime the Roads and Transport Authority announce a road, I'm like, bring it on. Talk to us on the radio. I support your mission. You guys are great. Build more roads. And... Um, I, I, I even support Salek with their new tolls because maybe that will put people off driving. <laughs> they announced two new gates just recently. I don't think they've come into effect yet, but it's going to cost you more to go on the big roads. I don't mind that either if it means there's fewer cars. But I was really excited about this idea um, because... I mean, basically, the Roads and Transport Authority and SALEC, it's quite hard to pin down who's actually having the conversation because I tried to get both of them on. Neither wanted to come on and both said it was the other person talking about it. But they are apparently, between the two of them, discussing or considering introducing dynamic tolling. Uh, so in layman's terms, that means the toll will vary throughout the day according to the traffic or maybe according to the number of people travelling in your car, for example. Um, and that's the idea behind that is if you make it more expensive during rush hour, you sort of spread rush hour out. Um, Abu Dhabi actually already uses peak toll time toll systems, as do a number of cities around the world. But do they work? We wanted to find out. So I'm joined on the line now by Professor Graham Curry. He is director of the Monash University's Public Transport Research Group. He really is a world-leading researcher on transport policy. It is a great pleasure to have him join us on the line. Uh, Professor Curry, good morning to you. Good morning. Well, good afternoon to you because it's evening for you probably. <laughs> but good morning from us. It is. <clears throat> good morning, Georgia. Tell us a little bit about how dynamic tolling works in theory, just so that we can sort of rest it in our minds? Well, you've just said it yourself. You've got too much traffic. You would like to have less. It's like anything that you buy, the higher the price, less people will use it. So you're really charging people for overuse of roads when they're very busy. And the result is you generate revenue, which you could invest in alternatives to roads. And you also reduce the demand, which is what you wanted, so the traffic moves more freely. People. The, the dynamic aspect of it is quite simple, really. All it's saying is that the charges are going to be higher when the problem's bigger. <clears throat> and these days with electronic payments, that's all very doable and understandable. Uh, a lot of the previous congestion charges were fixed prices, uh, which were easier to implement. But these days we can... We can get dynamic and variable tolling to work and it, uh, it helps manage the problem more efficiently. 
People really hate it, though, don't they? I mean, we had, I, I was in London when they introduced the congestion charge. And I mean, well, there's quite, there's quite a sort of powerful road lobby, it's fair to say, in the UK. Um, and it didn't go down very well. I mean, they still got it through, but it didn't go down very well. You're quite correct. Um, people like their cars. They like the freedom it provides. And, you know, it has been very influential on all economies around the world. But the problem is when you get too much of them, they become a problem and you need to manage it somehow. So I understand why people don't like being charged for things, but they don't have to travel in the peak of the peak. If they've got a choice to travel at other times, then this charge allows them to do it then. Um, in the end, we need a solution to the problem. This is a very effective solution. And so it is effective. So it does, uh, you know, if you hit people in their pockets, they change their behaviour. Is that the reality? That's the reality. It has happened in all of these situations. You have to design it well. Uh, and certainly the authorities there are good at that type of thing. I'm sure they'll be able to do that. Um, you can you have a choice about what level to put the prices at. Uh, in some cities, they really want to invest in alternatives using the money that's generated rather than just having a normal tax, which goes to government money. That's what we call it. We academics use a long word. It's called hypothecation. It says we're going to use the money to provide a solution. And I would recommend that. And the solution in Dubai these days is a, a better public transport system so people don't have to drive. Um, so I like these investment programs that use the problem to, to create a solution. One of the reasons why people love their cars in the UAE is because in the summer it gets really very hot indeed. And of course, it's essentially your car just becomes a moving air conditioning unit, keeping you at the temperature you want to be. Do you think that that poses an extra challenge for the authorities here when they're trying to manage the congestion problem that they're now facing? In managing the congestion problem, I'm not sure. Um, in providing alternatives to the car, yes, because we need uh, we need to have people walking to transit because you can't have good public transport down every street. And that definitely will be a challenge there. Uh, it's why you need good public transport throughout the city, not just down the major corridors, uh, to be an alternative. For the congestion travelling scheme itself, I'm not sure... Um, the the environment matters too much, uh, but certainly for the alternatives, it does. So are there cities where this has actively changed the whole landscape and changed the congestion entirely? Um, yes, you need to manage your expectations. What you're going to do is you're going to generate some money for this, which will help you provide long-term solutions. And then in the peak, things will move a little better. Okay, Travel times will be a little bit more reliable very big important issue for businesses and travel times will uh, will get uh, quicker particularly in the peak when this is happening um, is it a revolution it is a better way of managing it and it pays for itself um, does it mean the city is a completely different place to where it was before well it's not quite as badly congested and the problems that you talked about in your own narrative at the beginning about your day coming into work that might just be a little bit better. Well, yeah, you might have a bit less of the radio presenters complaining about their mornings on the radio. <laughs> that would help. Um, is it 
is it a better alter, is it a better solution than building more roads? Because I was convinced that the answer was building more roads. And then I did a really interesting interview about a year ago where I discovered, well, where another professor, I, I actually, I don't think it was you, but another professor suggested that building more roads only makes things better for a very short amount of time and then it's worse. Yes, I'm afraid this is the end result of all knowledge in the field. We have discovered that building more roads creates more traffic. And also, roads are very ugly things, um, and particularly larger roads. And they can destroy the built environment. They can destroy the cities we, we, uh, we like. You can try and build them underground or raise them above the ground, but they're also ugly. So uh, roads uh, tend to create a bigger, bigger problem until we end up with uh, very, very large freeways in California, for example, which are really not a really uh, a livable city. Uh, we might have a short-term impact on travel, but uh, that the long-term we generate more traffic, and that is the problem. We've got too much traffic. When it comes back to this charging, uh, is there a sort of thesis around how much money you should add, how much you should add to the charge to make, to put people off? You know, is there a sort of, I mean, obviously there's different currencies, but if you make it 20% more expensive, 20% more expensive to travel at peak time, does that put people off or does it need to be 50% more expensive? Well, there's a balance to be made here. Basically, the higher the charge, the more effect you're going to have and the more revenue you'll generate. But unfortunately, you know, these are democratic. They're um, the societies where a lot of the population have a very big say in things. And that would be very unpopular to have a very high charge. Now, economists have a a method where they can generate uh, what they believe is an efficient charge. And that price is based on the travel time savings that would result. And so they often peg it to that. But some authorities charge more than that to generate more revenue as an incentive. Depends on what your objectives are, really. If you're just trying to save travel time, it would be one charge. If you're trying to reduce emissions for climate change, which is certainly some of the systems have tried to do that, then your charge might be higher to represent the effects of that. So it's all about the objectives you have and how brave your government is. I think the government out here, pretty brave, pretty confident that it can do what it wants when it comes to imposing charges. Uh, So it'll be very interesting to see what route they choose, uh, whether or not indeed they do put the charges quite high and then invest that money into the public transport system. Uh, Professor Graham Curry, a pleasure as always to have you join us on the agenda. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for uh, unfortunately disappointing me once again on the idea of building new roads, just making the traffic worse. Uh, But it's been lovely to chat to you nevertheless. Uh, Professor Graham Curry, Director of Monash University's Public Transport Research Group. And he really is one of the world's leading researchers on transport policy. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome back. Agenda time here. Right, OK, we are going to be starting with a sort of question of sorts. Have you ever used the Dubai Police app to make a report? And if you did, what did you report? I've actually never used it. I've downloaded it recently, but I've not actually used it because I haven't had a traffic accident. Woohoo! 
and you have to report any accident through the app. It's actually made it a lot faster. Um, but did you know that you? You know, it's not just for that. You can actually also report traffic offences, uh, any community concerns you might have, and even possible criminal behaviour. Now, I ask that because Dubai Police has been releasing details of the success of its phone app this week. And it really does sound like it's been quite a game changer for the city's residents. Producer Jennifer Crichton joins me in the studio now. She has been finding out more on this subject. Um, OK, so Jen... Just to make sure I'm talking about the right thing, what app are we actually talking about here? Well, it's referred to as the Police Eye app, and it was launched in 2019. The the aim of this is to make it easier for people living here to report all sorts of concerns to the police. And it's not just accidents, although that is what I've used it for, as you say. Now, you know those annoying massage cards that get stuck to your car window? There's a reporting category just for them. That's if you live in, they happen in JLT for the most part, don't they? JLT, I think, um, TCOM, or is that now? Oh, Barsha Heights. Or Barsha Heights. It's called. Yes. There's, there's some areas where it happens quite a lot if you're parked. There is. So there's a whole category on the app for reporting them. There's also categories for reporting suspicious vehicles, illegal credit practices, vandalism, disturbances, suspicious gatherings. Oh, I could go off on one on that app. You My could report me. a lot of yeah, things. You can go full neighbourhood watch. Absolutely. And then there are the traffic offences, which of course we're all familiar with those. There's a lot of traffic offences that you can report. And you can even use the app to report concerns about security and traffic offences outside your school. And it seems that many people do. Earlier, I chatted to First Lieutenant Khaled Barakat from Dubai Police CID, and he told me the app had proved hugely popular in 2023. We receive all the kind of uh, reports, actually. The criminal reports, the traffic reports, and the community reports. Each one of them, so we can see what's the most in the common. But from the beginning, 108,000 information has been sent. 60,000 of them was criminal cases that's been sent and the others was traffic. We receive it and we start studying the report that's been came. Then after that it will be sent for the expert of it. So if it's a criminal or for the criminal expert, traffic for the traffic and they start studying it and they answer it. And after that they start working to finish the report that's been received from police eye. Hear that right. That's more than 108,000 reports received last year from members of the public. And around 60,000 of those were about criminal behaviour. And while the force doesn't release information about specific arrests that is made as a result of those reports, Lieutenant Barakat said the information coming to officers through the app is actually proving to be hugely useful. It's very, very valuable information. Let me give you a story. One of the police eye report that has been received as someone who was recording for an accident that happened traffic and the person, the driver ran away and he had the plate so this gave us the information about the incident that happened and the person, so that's a valuable information there is another one, someone who was being captured from some people and he's been put in the car, in the beginning it was uh, seems to be a kidnapping case but generally after almost one hour they brought the car and everything it was a financial trouble between some people and they was doing it by their way so it's not necessary that we'll be arresting them but the information was valuable we can use this information and study it and we can use it for the benefit of the community 
I missed that. What was it that they were doing? It wasn't a crime. It was a... It wasn't a kidnapping. It was a, a disagreement between some people and they were able to sort it out. But it was reported as a kidnapping or a suspected kidnapping. That I mean, that is really interesting how critical the information, you know, is and, and, and how random it is that it's being submitted via app or not random, oddly enough, because that's how they want it to be reported. But I mean, it is one thing to report an obvious crime. But do you think people feel safe enough to sort of report issues that are less clear-cut, you know, where they're not entirely sure if a crime's being committed, for example. Yeah, that's the interesting question, isn't it? And of course, we can all understand there being a certain fear or reluctance to put your name to a report if you're worried that you've maybe misunderstood a situation or that you could be wasting police time. But interestingly, Lieutenant Barakat said officers are aware that people worry that they themselves could find themselves facing hassle or just a lot of extra life admin as a result of reporting. And he said officers are really keen to stress that not only is that not the case, that members of the public are actually free to seek advice too. I think that's built the trust for the people. The, the thing that the people used to be a little bit confused to tell the information that they are not waiting if you will open a case because the pain or the trouble was with you personally. But there is sometimes there is information, uh, a bad attitude, a problem that has been, they will be seeing and they don't want to face it. So they will just need someone to inform them. This is the information, that, the, the place that can they use it. They cancel the information and now they, after that, get the solution for us. He also went further in saying that even information that might strike you or I as unimportant or fairly minor could be key to police. And he was really keen to stress that the more the app is used by members of the public, the more useful it will be. It's a very, very important concern. It's a responsibility that will come for us all together by police and our community, our people here in Dubai. If they see anything wrong is going on with them, they can just record it and they can send it for us. That will be very, very important for them and for us. We are keeping the safety and the security of Dubai by itself for our people in UAE. And the information that will be very, very valuable for us that we can study it and we can use it to save other victims. So you don't know what's the value of the information if you send it. But believe me, all the information that will be sent is correct. We study it, and then after that, we can give you the answer for it. Some people maybe will take the information that will be, they see it as a criminal, but we can call them and can understand them. We can thank them for the information that's been given for us because the information is very, very valuable for us. And we can use it to fix something or clean something, or we can cancel some procedures that can be done. So information is very, very valuable for us. Really interesting stuff. And uh, I've actually just been listening and listen to that and also looking at my Dubai police app and it is really easy there is one bit in the middle which you just click on which says uh, police eye and of course that is how you can report crime so well worth trying out if you haven't done it before uh, huge thanks there to producer Jennifer Crichton for catching up with First Lieutenant Khaled Barakat from Dubai Police CID about the growing use of that Dubai police eye application. Uh, Lots more where that's coming from. We're always very grateful to Dubai Police when they come on the radio to talk to us. Uh, So hopefully we'll catch up with First Lieutenant Khaled Barakat again in the future. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8 the UAE's number one talk radio station. Hey there, welcome back to The Agenda. Right, I've got a question for you. Often start with a question. 
What do you consider when you're shopping for, I don't know, gifts or toiletries? Is it just about the price? Is it about the effectiveness? Is it how pretty it looks? I have to say, recently I went to a shop and they offered me free packaging, free wrapping. I was all in for that. Or do you actually sort of take a minute to consider who is benefiting from your purchase other than obviously the business that you're buying it from? And apparently more and more of us are actually doing that. The World Economic Forum says that impact businesses or social enterprises, as they're better known, now generate about two trillion trillion US dollars each year. And they're actually responsible for more than 200 million jobs. I had no idea. I have to admit, I don't really think about who's benefiting from my purchase yet. That is something that I need to be educated to do, I think. And maybe my next guest will be doing exactly that. um, Because Daniel Flynn co-founded Australian Social Enterprise. Thank you. At the age of, get this, 19 Uh, Now, 14 years later, I'm trying to do the maths while I'm talking and I can't. uh, The company's products have raised more than 17 million Australian dollars for projects fighting poverty in 31 countries. Not bad for uh, whatever old you are. I can't work it out. Um, Daniel, absolutely fabulous to have you join us in the studio. Thank you very much. You're over from Australia in Dubai. Why are you here? Tell me why you're here. Well, uh, Georgia, thank you for having me. Look, we're here because... We're launching Thank You in Dubai. Uh, And it's not on shelf yet, but later this year, you'll start to see our products. We have 70 products from hand and body washer to cleaners. They'll start to pop up on shelves and bring people here in Dubai a a chance to make a simple switch. It's something you buy every day, but that switch in our case exists all for the end of extreme poverty. So we cannot wait to get the Thank You products here. And yeah, we're, we're meeting some great people, learning a lot about the region and local need, global need. So when you started the company, did you always know you wanted to be a social enterprise company? Did you always know that you wanted to give back? Because it's quite, I mean, you were 19. That's quite unusual to have that level of foresight. Well, to be honest, I mean, I had had dreams of building skyscrapers. I was studying construction management. I really wanted to do big, big scale property development. And I had this moment at 19, literally tears streaming down my face as I watched stories of kids who didn't have access to clean water. These were in parts of sub-Saharan Africa. And I'm watching this story thinking, this is so wrong. And at the same time, in 20, 2008, when we started, we were spending $50 billion globally on bottled water. And I thought, well, how about that? You've got these two water extremes. Imagine if there was a brand of water that gave all the profit to funding water projects. And that was the beginning of Thank You. So our first product in Australia was a bottle of water. And now it's grown to many, many other products. We no longer do bottled water for some environmental reasons, but... Yeah, I think for me, I was driven by business, but then just this realization of maybe business could do good. And more than just business or business owners, but maybe consumers. Together, we could take this. I mean, there's a stat that says we spend $63 trillion a year on consumer goods. That's us together. Meanwhile, you know, 715 million people live in extreme poverty. So really, we see ourselves as a bridge between the two. And so... How do the finances break down in terms of profit and, yeah. and impact funding? So if I sure. buy a bottle of shampoo for, yeah. I don't know, 50 dirhams, which is about $4, yeah, yeah. Um, how does that break down to poverty and, and you guys paying to make it? Yeah, cool. Well, look, what's really different about our social enterprise versus, say, a claim like we give 10 cents from every product. The difference for us is it exists all for the mission. So our business is owned 100% by our charitable trust. 
That means that staff get paid, but founders don't get shares or equity. So all the profit, kind of the good stuff at the end, after all the expenses, that goes. So in some cases, it may be as little as a few cents, or in other cases, it may be a few dollars. It depends on where it's sold, how it's sold. What we focus on is that, what's that annual giving number? And you, you just mentioned it, and it's just gone up a little bit more to 18.1 million. So we're continuing to give out that the, the sort of the big upside, which usually belongs to the shareholder or the owner or the founder. But in this case, it belongs to those working to end extreme poverty um, around the world. It's interesting you say there that you do all sorts of consumables. Yeah. And so all that people need to do is make the decision to switch. Yeah. And, and if they make the decision to switch to yours, then they're giving money to charity without even really yeah. realizing. Do you think people care enough to do that? Have you seen a change in consumer attitude since you started out 14 years ago? Yeah, look, we have certainly over the journey. I mean, now more and more, particularly in Australia and other parts of the world, social enterprise has really taken, um, it's taken a great momentum step. And I think it's because as consumers, the idea of, wow, my purchase is powerful. Alone, it's maybe just one hand wash. But if your friends and family and a whole country did it, I mean, in Australia, we have the number one hand wash. It held that position for five years. Now, that is, that is a big claim. That's huge. And it's, again, some of the big brands. But it's because a, a bunch of people in Australia said, well, why not? I mean, it's a great product. It's design-led. The formula's good. It's natural. And it does good. And, and I think our job at Thank You is to make product that is so good you'd buy it anyway. But the fact that it exists all for a mission, hopefully you'll commit to us for life. Is it a little bit more expensive? Do you add a premium? No, we, we don't add a premium for the cause. Um, okay. I think, you know, some say we could and there's a lot of studies around it. But I, I actually think at the end of the day, the real challenge to a social business is how do you turn up on shelf mm-hmm. um, at, at that, you know, price that's affordable? How do you bring great quality product and, and give it and not charge more for the cause? Yeah. So that, that's our mission. But you will find us on shelf in the more premium uh, segment because of the products are really good quality. Mm-hmm. Um, rule one at Thank You Make Great Product. Rule two, never break rule one. And so we, we aim to really make that product special, something that you'd want to gift. If you're somebody like me, and I, have, and I feel slightly embarrassed saying this on the radio mm-hmm. now because it, it sounds like I could make a very simple decision to mm-hmm. sort of change my, my, my buying habits. I slightly have already. I, I do try and buy local, for mm-hmm. example. Five years ago, never even would have occurred to me. Sure. But what would you like people to consider when they are going around the shopping market? Remembering that often they're mums, they're busy, and you know, you've, got to get, you've got a million things on your mind. How, do you, how would you say that people could make little changes to, yeah. to make a big difference? I mean, it's funny, that last phrase you said is thank you. When I was 19, we had this idea. I felt, I'll be honest, sitting in front of my computer watching these stories, I felt helpless. Like there is hundreds of millions of people stuck in this situation. I can't make a difference. And then I discovered, well, alone I can't, but with others I can. And now we've created a product where as a consumer, you go from the busy mum, you're like, I, I don't have time to think about the world problems. I'm looking after my family. Cool. Guess what? When you switch to a brand like Thank You or another social enterprise, you're doing the best for your family, purely based on the product itself. And at the same time, we're helping you have that local impact um, and that global impact too. So it's a real partnership. And I mean... I cannot wait to one day see thank you everywhere, yeah. kind of in the world, you know, because I think then we go from millions to one day, you know, billions and, and, and more and, and a true impact. And I think righting a wrong, this inequality in our world that shouldn't exist, here's a great chance as consumers for us to change that.
Really inspirational stuff, I have to say, uh, Daniel. You've converted me. I will cool. be changing my perspective as I go around the supermarket. Uh, and it's been absolutely wonderful to have you join us in the Agendas studio. Thank you so much for your time. Thank Pleasure. you for having me. Thank you very much indeed. Daniel Flynn there, uh, the co-founder of the Australian Social Enterprise. Thank you. Uh, hopefully you'll be able to find those products in some very recognisable named shops. I can't say them. I don't think so. I'm not going to say them. Uh, but you might be able to see them very soon uh, right here in the UAE. Uh, but great to have Daniel join us in the studio. It's time to catch up on the latest sports headlines. And I'm delighted to say, joined on the line live today by Chris McCarty, our editor of sport. Mr. McCarty, how are you? Very good morning to you, Georgia. Yes, not often that we do it live these days, but I'm well. Uh, You've got the fact that the Australian Open is ongoing is the reason that we're doing it live today, because I thought Daniel Medvedev would have had his quarterfinal match against Hubert Harkash of Poland done and dusted. That's not the case. We're into a nail-biting fifth set. So this one is ongoing, of course, Daniel Medvedev. Former US Open champion looking to book a semi-final place, uh, of course, at the end of this week. And we're into a fifth set, Georgia. Ooh, tenterhooks then. Absolutely, yeah. It's been a cracking match. I've had one eye on this all morning. I've got errands to run, but you know me, Georgia. I never stray too far from the television screen. Certainly not when it's the quarterfinals of the Australian Open. And I've got to give full credit to Hubert Harkash, the big pole. He's a monster server and he's performing really well today. Daniel Medvedev won the first set. Hubert Harkash won the second. Daniel Medvedev then won the third. He got an early break in the fourth. And at that point, I thought, right, I can get this voice note sent over to Georgia pretty quick, smart. But all credit to Harkash. He's come back. And you've got to say now all the momentum is with the big pole as he looks to secure a semi-final berth. And they will play. The winner of this quarterfinal will play the winner of our final quarterfinal. This should be a really good one a little later on today as well. The world number two, Carlos Alcaraz, against the big serving number six seed down at the uh, Melbourne Park in Melbourne. It is Alexander Zverev. All eyes, I suppose, on the tennis right now and certainly for the next hour or so. Uh, but there has been uh, some, something going on in football as well, haven't there? We've, and we actually got, um, we've got something to look forward to as well tonight. Yeah, we do. Yeah, Georgia, let's look back before we look ahead. Of course, two major international football tournaments taking place. An odd time of year to have them. It's just the way that the calendar works. We've got the Asian Cup over in Qatar. Disappointment for the United Arab Emirates last evening. They were beaten 2-1 by Iran. The good news, though, the UAE have still qualified for the knockout stages. They finished second in their group despite that defeat last night. So there's still a chance that the UAE could go one better than their semi-final berth last time around and maybe just maybe go all the way in this Asian Cup. Uh, The other result from last night, a big win for Palestine. We know what's obviously going on from a political standpoint over there in Palestine. They were 3-0 winners over Hong Kong. Australia, they drew 1-1 with Uzbekistan. So Australia and Uzbekistan securing place in the knockout stages and history made for Syria as well. The first time that they qualified for the knockout stages, they were victorious over India. That's the Asian Cup from an African Cup of Nations perspective. It's ongoing as well. Cameroon, they have booked a last 16 clash with Nigeria. That easily the match of the tournament thus far. A disappointment for the 2019 winners, Algeria. They have been knocked out and they join well, the host, it looks like Ivory Coast, on the scrap heap just after the group stages. 
Chris McCarty. Always fabulous to have you join us on the radio. Lovely to have you live this morning. I wish you a very good afternoon. Uh, apart from off script, anything else to look forward to for you? Yeah, I'll be I'll be keeping an eye on the tennis, Georgia. As I say, there's there's not much that pulls me away from live sport. I'll be doing that. We're obviously building up to another busy night of African Cup of Nations, Asian Cup action, and. There is the second EFL Cup semi-final second leg. Liverpool, they go to Fulham tonight. I should have pointed that out, actually. Chelsea, winners over Middlesbrough last night. 6-1 on the night. 6-2 on aggregate. Chelsea will be in that EFL Cup final at Wembley at the end of next month. They await the winners of the second leg tonight between Fulham and Liverpool. Liverpool with that 2-1 advantage. Mr. McCarty, always lovely to have you on the line. Thank you very much indeed. If you want more Chris, if you want more Robbie, if you want more Sonal, make sure you tune into your Drive Time show this afternoon from 5pm. They go through all the way through till 8, I think. Do they go all through to 8? I feel like they do. The Agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.